Sir Balfour and the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance. The managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dan Kever, Dan Kever, Dan, Dave Cameron endeavors this week, uh, he endeavors this week to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, Kyle McDaniel published the introduction to his top 200 prospect list on Monday. We'll produce the actual list on Tuesday. Dave Cameron will, uh, has written, is writing a companion piece to that looking at the value of prospects, looking at the value of prospects and considering uh, the value of upside or perhaps a high ceiling versus a high floor. Dave Cameron speaks to that and what follows. The conversation dovetails with another post Dave Cameron wrote last week concerning those lists you might see uh, around the Internet proclaiming this or that organization as having had the best offseason or perhaps the worst offseason. Dave Cameron says why you ought to ignore those and why investing in the future has perhaps some value that is not immediately regarded by uh, the mainstream media. We'll call it the mainstream media. There is, of course, always a balance for each club during the offseason, balancing their present and their future interests. Dave Cameron thinks that the Los Angeles Dodgers improved themselves in both capacities and would have had uh, what he considers the most successful offseason, even regardless of their monetary advantages. I think the Dodgers would still have that best offseason overall, even given the fact that they had copious amounts of resources to spend, because I think they spent the, the money they had really well. Spangraph's audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Hey, uh, what do you what do you want to do? Podcast? Yeah. Um. Uh, hey, uh, let's start, let's start talk briefly. Uh, let's do some uh, house cleaning. One okay. thing. Uh, one thing. Uh, Kylie's prospect post is going up tomorrow. True. Yes. And you're gonna write some sort of companion to that, I think. I am. What are you gonna say in it? Um, I'm essentially going to kind of talk about the difference between how one values upside versus floor. I think this is kind of the the biggest differentiation in prospect lists as we see some outlets or some writers uh, trying to maximize uh, the number of stars that they can identify. And so they just go very heavily towards the upside side of things. And then we see some others who uh, maybe put a little bit more emphasis on proximity to the major leagues or minor league performance, and so their list is going to maybe be a little bit uh, more conservative with uh, ceiling and, and perhaps lean a little bit more heavily on present value uh, and just kind of uh, maybe discuss the trade-off between those two approaches and, and kind of what the balance uh, should be. The uh, uh, Do we know what, what Kylie McDaniel's uh, biases are in that regard? I think... Uh, he does, I mean, you know, we're, I guess we're biased in, uh, <laughs> in acknowledging his bias and that he works for us and we hired him and we think he's doing a good job. Yeah. I think he does a, a fairly good job balancing the two. I think he's probably less, uh, shifted towards the ceiling end of things than maybe some others. I think in general, uh, prospect lists have heavily gone towards upside, uh, in their history, which is one of the reasons why pitching prospects have, uh, been Kind of overranked uh, historically, considering the attrition rate of arms and and how many of them are going to you know never produce anything in the major leagues. Uh, I think Kylie's done a, a nice job of 
of kind of shifting away from that particular bias doesn't necessarily mean he's hitting the right uh, balance necessarily. I think in general, uh, I would suggest that the data um, says that prospect identification leans too heavily on potential. Uh, but I think Kylie does a, a fairly good job of incorporating present value and, uh, you know, attrition into his calculations. In terms of weighting these things, it, it's essentially, right, there's a evaluating two factors. Correct me if I'm wrong. You have on the one hand, you have, you have the answer to this question, what is this prospect ceiling? Yeah. And then you have on the other side, what is, what is the probability of him reaching that ceiling? Yes. And I think, you know, within those two questions, uh, I am of the belief that the first question is basically hogwash. Uh, you know, not completely, uh, useless, but, but more useless than we might think. And that, you know, it is very common for, um, you know, a guy like Matt Carpenter does that you say, this is his ceiling. He's a utility infielder with no power. And then he makes some structural changes and all of a sudden he's an all-star second baseman. Uh, you know, I think, uh, our ability to limit a player based on their physical potential is less concrete than maybe we think. And I think, you know, uh, guys like Jose Altuve or uh, even Mookie Betts, you know, guys who have significantly outperformed, uh, to this point, what their ceiling even was early in their careers, should maybe make us uh, remember that we're not so good at saying that a player cannot do more than this, and especially on the pitching side. I mean, Cliff Lee was a you know back-end command number five starter with an 88-mile-an-hour fastball until he turned into an ace with a 92-mile-an-hour cutter. Yeah. How did it well, – but, but as a – okay, so we have two things happening, right? There's the people who are uh, composing the prospect list, which in many cases is a thankless job. Yeah. Uh, and then we have – but it's one that – excites people i think people especially if you have a if you're a fan of a particular team you could say oh my club has uh six guys on the top 100 list or zero guys in the top 100 list i'm mad um <clears throat> the other hand there's uh, organizations and how they go about it um and i don't know if you if you invoked cliff lee is there any way to have an idea that a player is going to turn into cliff lee no <laughs> and i think this is one of the things that uh, to some extent, you could say that maybe this whole prospect ranking grading system is an exercise in futility, uh, not too different from, you know, maybe preseason projections where, you know, like we have Zips and Steamer and, you know, there's tons of other projection systems out there. And we know that they're kind of projecting a, a mean performance around, uh, around, you know, where there's a, a large range of values around that mean. And so you say, okay, well, we've got this team as an 84 win team, which means that maybe they'll win somewhere between 76 and 90. If they play, you know, within two standard deviations and then, you know, there's the Orioles of the last couple of years who blow away the projections and make them look silly. So, you know, there's some chance that they could even be like a 95 win team and, and this projection could be totally useless. It, the same is kind of true of prospecting, right? Where you look at this guy and say, I think this guy is, you know, maybe an above average major leaguer with a chance to be nothing and a chance to be a star. And so you've got these really wide air bars, uh, which are, you know, certainly wider the further you get from the major leagues. Uh, which some could say, you know, maybe makes this whole process useless, but I do think there is some value in trying to identify the amount of information uh, that we do have and, and what we can learn, even if at the end of the day it's it's not a lot. Yeah, well, uh, I think that the projections do a better job than if you were to just assign random, if you were to guess randomly, right? Correct. Yeah, and I think that's probably true of prospecting too. Like, when, you know, uh, I have seen a decent number of, I'd call it prospect fatigue, probably, where people just say, look, the bust rate of prospects is so high and prospect analysis is 
you know, so filled with, um, you know, guesses and speculation that I'm just going to assume that all prospects are useless and all I want <laughs> is major league players. And, you know, the, the, there's a school of thought out there of, you know, the prospects are worthless or they're being highly overvalued, where if you just assume that every prospect is the same, uh, you're going to miss things and you're going to be worse off than if you actually try and uh, differentiate between, you know, Chris Bryant and Austin Hedges. Right. Well, the, oh, that's an interesting pairing. Austin Hedges, well, anyway. Wait, but those are, they're both good prospects, those two. Yeah, I think Austin Hedges might be the most fascinating prospect in the majors right now, or in the minors right now. Do you now. mean I think the, the gap between his offensive and defensive skills? And I think what he, like he's kind of the poster child for what you, or what a prospect analyst values, right? Like, not to give away too much ahead of time, but I think uh, Hedges ranks in a, a group of players that's kind of toward the back end of the top 100 mm-hmm. uh, on Kylie's list, and I've seen him as high as, I think, 25 on another list uh, where he's considered one of the elite prospects in the game. If you really buy into kind of catcher framing, run saved, and the value of having an elite defensive uh, backstop and his effect on your pitching staff, I don't think that's a, it's that hard to argue that Hedges you know, might be one of the best prospects in the game, even though he had a 250 on base percentage in double A last year. Like the, the, he's such an extreme player in both regards, uh, that he really helps kind of reveal, uh, what the, the prospect ranker, uh, prioritizes. Is there, no, we're talking about it from the, the sort of, right, the rankers, the prospect analysts, and Kylie is one of them, Keith Law, friend of the site is one of them. Uh, John Sickles is out there. Baseball Prospectus uh, does their own work. There's a lot of that. And uh, generally, again, it's, it can be a thankless job because a number, you know, a comment that's frequent is, this is stupid. <laughs> yeah. You see, you see yeah. this is stupid. And, uh, well, you know, if, if as long as it's uh, well-reasoned, uh, there's no reason to spew vitriol. Um, but uh, do, among organizations – do you notice any sort of uh, systematic biases? Are there teams, do you think, that do uh, – you, you mentioned Matt Carpenter, that he's a St. Louis Cardinal. The St. Louis yeah. Cardinals have had uh, quite a bit of luck with later round picks. They also spent this offseason acquiring Ty Kelly and Dean Anna, yep. um, who, who have zero tools between them. And yet, <laughs> and yet but, um, you know, could potentially uh, uh, help the club at the major league level. So I'm guessing that that might be one version, but do you, do you see within clubs a sort of systematic biases? Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any question that certain organizations, certain general managers have preferences. I think, uh, you know, the Atlanta Braves have, have for a very long time put a uh, high emphasis on uh, high school players from the state of Georgia and upside arms. Uh, you know, they've just kind of, that's been the, the Braves' MO is uh, local guys and, uh, you know, pitching prospects uh, coming out the wazoo. It's just, that's that's what the Braves like, and you know when uh, their kind of new front office took over this winter with John Hart and John Copalella uh, kind of remaking the team. They they spent almost their entire winter trading uh, hitters away for pitchers. That's just that this is how they want to rebuild their team is they want to have uh, a plethora of pitching prospects and guys who throw hard. And uh, so I think you know there are certain organizations we can say like probably the Oakland A's go the other direction necessarily. Um, you know they're probably going to put more of an uh, an emphasis on uh, you know, uh, performance instead of ceiling and, and kind of look for guys who, you know, maybe aren't going to turn into stars, but could be really useful players for the next three or four or five years. And I think acquiring a guy like Marcus Semyon is a pretty decent example of the kind of player that the A's value more likely, uh, than, you know, a team like the Braves. Right. 
And they also, I believe they employ Ben Zobris now too, isn't that right? Yeah, I think, uh, right. Ben Zobris is kind of the poster child for, uh, performance over tools and, and what you can get if you go after those kinds of players. Matt Carpenter is another one. Uh, and I think, you know, in general, the teams that probably are a little more anal- analytically inclined are going to end up with more of those types of players rather than, you know, guys with really loud tools who, you know, throw a hundred and hit the ball 450 feet. With regard to, um, the, uh, the Atlanta baseball club, uh, you mentioned that they have, uh, shown a preference for local guys, which is, which is uh, obviously the case given the players who've appeared on their roster. I, I'm curious though as to what the advantage could be in that, except for the fact that, I don't know, it's just a shorter drive? Because <laughs> teams usually have scouts everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just, uh, you know, uh, logistical uh, benefit. I think Georgia has, a, or at least has had in the past, a very strong youth baseball culture, probably stronger so than just about any other area in the country with the uh, Cobb County uh, having a, a development program that was um, churning out significant talent. Uh, and I think, you know, in the southern states, you're going to have more opportunities for, for guys to play baseball year-round. And so, um it's it's probably a little bit of just a geographic advantage where the Braves happen to be located in an area where um, children can play baseball, you know, 12 months a year or 11 months a year or something along those lines. So you've got a, a deeper crop of talent than you uh, would if you're in, you know, Michigan or North Dakota or somewhere where it's cold all the time. Uh, and I think, you know, the Braves were able to kind of capture the hearts and minds of a lot of Kids growing up in the 90s, when they were good every single year, and they went to the World Series basically every single year, uh, and they were able to kind of tap into players who would uh, kind of buy into their philosophy and their way of playing baseball because that's what they grew up with. Right. Um, you mentioned in one case this uh, this idea of investing in the future. Uh, you've you've written a post um, uh, uh, this past or last week. You wrote a post as to why uh, readers should ignore off-season winner and loser recaps. Um, I did, yeah. It includes this line. I'm pretty sure I've uh, never been invited to a party to reward someone for downsizing and putting the savings into a low-cost index fund, however. Yeah, uh, no, no one has ever invited me to that uh, anti-housewarming party. Right. Yeah, and... House, uh, house cooling party. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll invent that. But, and so first of all, could you just... Because you, you seem to be pretty comfortable with this idea, and... While I'm uh, entirely willing to entertain it, it's not one with which I'm as familiar. But you're sort of talking about just a natural, uh, what a natural focus on uh, short-term investments as opposed to long-term. That it just is sort of, uh, it's something that pleases people inordinately. Yeah, I think in, I mean, just outside of baseball, in baseball too, but just in general, I think the American culture. Uh, of which I'm a part of. This isn't me saying, you know, this is how everyone else does it. I'm, I'm certainly living this way as well. Uh, we have grown to emphasize things that we can uh, tangibly put our hands on and show off to our friends. And so we are much more likely to spend $30,000 on a new car, which will depreciate very quickly and potentially get wrapped around a telephone pole or, uh, you know, damaged and destroyed in some way. Uh, but certainly over the next five or ten years, we'll lose almost all of its value uh, but that's considered, you know, a completely normal American way of life is to have a really nice car with a lot of bells and whistles that no one needs, and at the same time to have a, you know, wildly under underfunded savings account, uh, retirement plan, be carrying, you know, revolving debt that has significant interest payments uh, that harms your financial future. And so I think that's just 
for whatever reason, this is kind of the culture we're, we're in is that we uh, are willing to make a lot of long-term sacrifices for short-term uh, luxuries that we don't need. And I think we see that uh, kind of following over in baseball as well, where, uh, you know, when we're analyzing a team's offseason, we generally say every team that uh, uh, has, you know, sacrificed future value in order to increase their their short-term 2015 present uh, roster is considered to be an off-season winner, even if they made a marginal upgrade that's going to have a long-term uh, harm to the franchise. Well, my guess is that you also see a considerable ambiguity here because you've also written recently about the uh, the potential wisdom of the Padres' off-season upgrade, even if the upgrade is is one that's not likely to land them in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, so right. I, I think you know the the goal here is balance. At, at all times, you're trying to to kind of balance short-term and long-term rewards. And ideally, you'd like to be upgrading your franchise in both at at all times. But you know, often that's difficult. You you generally have to make moves that pick one or the other. Uh, I think the Padres, no question, went in for the short term this year, and that's one of the reasons why. They're going to be considered the off-season winner by almost every major media source that does these kinds of things. Uh, and because, you know, they traded players that the media or, you know, casual fans have not heard of for players that they have heard of. So it's a really easy conclusion to draw. Uh, but I do think that doesn't necessarily make what the Padres did a disaster. I mean, I certainly didn't like the Matt Kemp trade, but most of the rest of the moves they made were okay or, or reasonable at least. Um, but I think that, you know, we have to continually in in our evaluations look and say how much value did they get near term how much value did they give up long term or vice versa and try to figure out uh you know who increased their team's overall value the most rather than just having a strong bias towards one side or the other um with just one note uh, i haven't i haven't asked kylie about this recently of course, he's our lead prospect analyst, and uh, so I'll ask you right now: Is there an update on the Trey Turner situation? Trey Turner, of course, being a, uh, a, a first-round draft selection in the most recent draft, and traded to the Nationals in a deal that sent uh, Steve Souza to the Rays, et cetera, et cetera. The point is, he has to be on, on the Padres until the middle of the year uh, because there's because of a rule. Yeah, I think the the update is there is no update, and he's going to end up being treated by every like every other player we name later. So Trey Turner is basically just going to spend the first couple months of the year in the Padres system, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's well known that he's a Nationals prospect now. Uh, he just won't officially be until uh, one year from his signing date. So uh, the the Nationals are going to have some flexibility in order to say, you know, we want him to play this position at this level, uh, and you know, hopefully this often, but. Beyond that, the Padres are basically going to be stewards of Trey Turner for a few months, <laughs> and uh, they're going to have custody of him until they hand him over. Yeah, but it's weird though, right? Because the, I suppose they have some incentive insofar as they want to maintain positive relations with all the other clubs. But right. besides that, the Padres don't really have any reason to play Trey Turner. Well, I mean, I think from their perspective, they've made an agreement uh, which is based upon uh, an assumption that they're going to act in good faith, right? So, like, uh, it might be one of those things where if you were living in a vacuum and never had to deal with anyone ever again, uh, you could just say, well, screw you. I've, I'm going to make self-interested uh, decisions and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, but, you know, the A.J. Preller has to deal with all these guys and he's uh, going to have to try and make trades and free agent signings and 
he's going to have to, you know, make decisions and make uh, moves with the other 29 organizations. And I think, uh, you know, the marginal gain of, of not playing Trey Turner and giving that playing time to some uh, lesser prospect whose development probably won't be significantly affected by playing a couple extra days a week uh, is not worth the cost and goodwill of burning those bridges and, and angering the other teams. Okay. That is a brief aside related to Trey Turner. Um, the thing we were just discussing, though, was the advantage. Well, on the one hand, uh, best and worst offseason recaps. On the other hand, investing for the future. Uh, to both those points, you published uh, last week as well the best and worst transactions of the offseason. And uh, interestingly, the Dodgers, which are a team who are playing for now, can invest as much as they want now because they have a lot of money and they had some tradable assets. I think they have... I think four or five deals among your top ten uh, transactions. Yeah, I and like the Dodgers offseason a lot. And if you have already mentioned that you think that it's important to balance future with present concerns, I, I suppose what is it about the Dodgers' moves that um, illustrate their ability to, to do that or illustrate their intentions to do that? I think the Dodgers are probably the only team in baseball that both improved their 2015 and their long-term uh, performances at the same time. I, I think every other team in baseball, for the most part, made some sacrifice on one side or the other, either you know taking on some uh, contracts that won't look so, so good in the future, or trading future prospects, or going the other way and maybe degrading their, their current team in order to improve their future. Um, I think basically every other team in baseball made made a sacrifice one way or the other. The Dodgers offseason, I think, almost uniformly improved their 2015 team to where I think they're now a better team than they would have been had they kept their roster together, while also cutting future salary commitments and adding prospects, which to do all of those in the same winter is kind of stunning. And, you know, it started with uh, revamping their front office, and I think the investing in Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi and all the other guys they hired uh, in order to kind of change their culture and change the way that they ran their baseball operations department was the best uh, 40 or $50 million or how much it cost them to hire all those guys uh, they could have possibly spent. And, and from that flowed a whole bunch of good moves that uh, has made them maybe maybe the best team in baseball or one of the top three or four, certainly, uh, with a, a strong foundation in place for the future uh, and a collection of interesting players that they had no right acquiring in the first place. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Now the uh, to to acquire Freeman and Zaidi, yep, uh, that required cash. Yep, oh, uh, that's one thing they have in abundance. Right, and the, also the uh, the acquisition of um, Howie Kendrick, Enrique Hernandez, Austin Barnes, Chris Hatcher uh, from the Marlins that also required a bit in the way of uh, cash outlay. Yep, uh, I think that they're paying some of Matt Kemp's contract. Is that true? They're paying 18 million of Matt Kemp's contract this year. Yeah, so they're they're basically paying. Uh, you know, three to four win money to a direct rival for a player to play against them uh, because they were so set on getting rid of the rest of that deal, which okay. tells you something about how valuable they think Matt Kemp is. They think Matt Kemp is, right. Uh, so here, here's the thing. A lot of those deals involved uh, their ability to spend money. Yes. There's no question that most teams couldn't have the Dodgers offseason because they couldn't afford to do what the Dodgers did. Uh, but the Dodgers, I think, have had these these kinds of financial resources before and ended up with Brandon League and Brian Wilson. So, you know, this is better. So, <laughs> so right. Well, that's – yes. If you were adjusting then – if you're adjusting or if you're looking at it within the context of previous Dodger offseasons, 
definitely the strongest, in, certainly in recent memory. Yeah, this this offseason they didn't take money and just light it on fire on the mound. But then, but if you were to adjust these transactions for the amount of resources or the resources available to the trade to the clubs involved, do you think that the results would be much different? I think the Dodgers would still have that best offseason overall, even given the fact that they had copious amounts of resources to spend, because I think they spent the, the money they had really well. I mean, I think like Brandon McCarthy for $48 million was a really nice investment, and I think uh, kind of targeting the guys they got from the Marlins, uh, which, you know, cost them, whatever, $12 million in cash if Dan Heron ends up not retiring and pitching the whole year. Uh, so they pay his salary, to pit, and they pay D. Gordon's salary. Uh, you know, so they picked up $12 million, but they bought, uh, some prospects that turned them into a year of Howie Kendrick and, you know, some interesting future players. That's a really nice move, even if you're not, uh, a loaded team with a lot of money to spend. Um, you know, I think in the, in the Matt Kemp trade, yes, they're paying some of his contract, but they were going to be paying his contract anyway, and they, uh, cut, you know, $75 million in future commitments. So that wasn't necessarily a trade they made because they're rich. It's a trade they made that actually, um, caused them to spend less money. So I think a lot of the moves they made, uh, weren't necessarily just because they were loaded. Uh, I do think you could look at maybe Toronto and say, okay, this is uh, a, a reasonably good offseason from a team that wasn't uh, you know, going to be able to run a $250 million payroll next year. This is maybe the next best offseason, I think. And so if you want to put the Blue Jays up there with the Dodgers because they don't have the Dodgers' uh, kind of financial resources, I'm okay with that. Because uh, are you including, was that, uh, that's the Donaldson acquisition? Yeah, and not just the Donaldson acquisition. I mean, I liked the Josh Donaldson pickup for the Blue Jays, but they did really give up some talent in that trade. And I think uh, people who think that that deal was a total heist for the Blue Jays are probably underrating uh, the players that went to Oakland. Uh, but I think you look at, you know, kind of like picking up Michael Saunders for J.A. Happ, uh, who they basically had replaced by shipping Adam Lind to Milwaukee for Marco Estrada. I mean, if you take those two moves as kind of one move, they traded a platoon first baseman DH with no defensive value, uh, making seven and a half million dollars in his final year of his contract for a, uh, younger, similar, uh, offensive, maybe not quite as good a hitter, but a better runner, better defender with more years of team control making $3 million. So they, they shed, shed payroll, picked up a better player who can better fit their team, uh, with extra t- control. Uh, you know, that's a, a nice little series of moves right there. And so like moves like that, uh, along with the Donaldson pickup, I think, uh, make, make the Blue Jays a, a, a pretty good winner this offseason. And the, and the Blue Jays were dealing, were they somehow benefiting from a rift that had developed between Saunders and the, the Mariners organization? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't think there's any question that the Mariners soured on Saunders, but the other 29 teams should have known that as well. I mean, this wasn't just a, the Blue Jays got him because, you know, he wanted to come play in Toronto as a free agent because he's Canadian. He is Canadian, but he didn't have a choice in where he was going to want to go. I think the Blue Jays did a nice job of kind of uh, beating the market to an underpriced and undervalued player. Uh, I wanted to say, I'm curious, um, you tend to know this certainly more than I do, if there is an economic concept for... Um, this thing with regard to the Matt Kemp situation. And I'll illustrate I saw it in a different context. I saw a tweet somewhere where whoever is the tweeter announced that he did not like the smoothie he was drinking, but because he had spent like 5 or $6 on it, he was going to drink the whole thing anyway, even though, yeah. it, even though it brought him displeasure. Right. He felt on principle he had to consume the entire thing because then his money would have been wasted. Right. But this also seems, and I think I've seen I've seen this explained elsewhere. This is now you're just there's two things wrong here. On the one hand, you misspent money, and now you're just hurting yourself because you misspent the money. 
Yeah, so the term is called sunk costs. Okay. So essentially, once you've spent the money, uh, it is gone, you cannot recover it, and your future actions should not be an attempt to justify money that cannot be recovered. At that point, you should only make decisions based on what will maximize your future happiness. And uh, drinking a terrible $6 smoothie will make you less happy than not drinking a terrible $6 smoothie. The $6 has already been wasted. Essentially, you think of it like a boat. You know, it's sunk, it's gone to the bottom of the ocean. You should not then kill yourself trying to <laughs> dredge it back up and patch the hole. You should just be like, well, I lost my boat. That sucks. Yeah. Right. And even I would say that even the boat situation may not be severe enough. The dying part is, but you can get a boat. But you but a smoothie, if it tastes if it doesn't bring you pleasure then don't then stop having it. You should have probably taken you should ask for a sample first. Is what you should have done. Yeah. Yeah, smoothie. or maybe just don't spend $6 on a smoothie. I guess not. Some you know in many cases, especially uh, maybe well, you live in a slightly warmer climate, but if you live in the north, fruit can be quite expensive during the summer. Or the winter. Yeah, it, it is possible that my price index is, is thrown off by living in a, in a cheap time, portion of the country. I will say, like, the last time I went to New York City, or no, not the last time, a couple times ago when I went to New York City and uh, went out to lunch with some folks, and the uh, the menu was handed to us, a lunch menu at a not particularly high-end restaurant handed to us, and, like, the hamburger was $18, and I wanted to just, like, punch someone. I yeah. was like, what, a, what kind of madness is this? But that's New York City, I guess. It is, yeah, it is a uh, different economy, isn't it? It, it is uh, a world unto itself. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, one more note. Would, uh, if, we, if you were to – you say your favorite small move was the Eugenio Suarez – or Eugenio Suarez, perhaps. The Eugenio Suarez acquisition by – or uh, yeah, by the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for Alfredo Simone. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an example of exactly the kind of move the Reds should have been making. In a little bit of a rebuild – Probably not going to contend this year, but picking up someone who can still help the major league team uh, gives them some depth behind uh, their starters who, you know, neither one of whom is a superstar, uh, and so Suarez could potentially play even if neither one gets hurt, and obviously if either one does get hurt now, they've got a, a reasonable fill-in, uh, and, you know, multiple years of team control of a guy who, you know, might end up being worth six, seven, eight million dollars a year, uh, or maybe more if he turns into an average, average big leaguer for Alfredo Simone is, you know, maybe not completely worthless, but not all that different from maybe Chris Young, who's a, still a free agent sitting on the free agent market as a guy who had a good year last year based almost entirely on holding down hits on balls in play uh, and doesn't have a long track record of throwing a lot of innings per year. I mean, you know, Simone you might prefer slightly to Chris Young, but is the difference really worth, uh, you know, an interesting young infielder who might eventually be a, a league average second baseman? It shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. A couple more logistical site-related questions. Uh, we have right, so the prospects. What do we know about zips and and when those are uh, will be on the site? The the 30 zips team by team breakdowns were completed completed last Friday, which you know because you I know. did them. I did them. Yeah. Uh, so the spreadsheet is going to the Dark Overlord this week, and uh, I cannot promise that they will be on the site this week, but I think that is the plan. Okay, uh, so we that's so we say that. Uh, here's another thing: uh, we have a number of new writers. We have five new writers. Yeah, that's yeah. that's quite good. That is uh, a number. Um, and um, that was all. Uh, that was all a result of the what the call for, the call for applications that we because we were going to hire one new person. Yeah, I mean about I don't know the turn of the year or so, or maybe the end of last year. David Appleman and I started discussing kind of staffing and decided that it would be good to add another. Uh, regular writer to the site. 
so we put up a we put up the post in mid January saying that we were looking for someone uh, to contribute almost daily or daily to Fangraphs, and we got so many good applications that we couldn't just hire one person. I mean, it just became very clear that turning away all but one of the applicants would have been a, a waste of the talent that was presented to us. Uh, you know, I think realistically we could have hired another 10 or 15 people uh, out of the pool of applicants we got and been, you know, very happy with all of them. Uh, we ended up picking five uh, in, you know, slightly different roles. Not all five of them are going to write every day. And uh, Sean Dolinar, who's uh, already made his debut on the site today, actually, with uh, an article of his own and uh, some graphics in the introduction to Kylie's piece. He's going to be, um, you know, doing kind of different work than you might expect from what previous Fangraphs writers have done. Larry Hayes, who's uh, immediately the uh, oldest Fangraphs writer on the staff, is going to be writing from a different perspective than we've had before. So I think we, we took an opportunity of having uh, a flood of talent uh, asked to write for the site to maybe branch out and, and add some different things to Fangraphs that we haven't had before. And uh, I've been led to believe that Chris Mitchell has been hired to uh, – has made me redundant. Is that true? Yeah, we basically found someone who can do all of the analytical-type things you do without all of the goofiness. Yeah. So yeah, we, we, we basically found someone to get rid of you. Yeah, that's great. Well, so looking you, forward so to gonna, <laughs> Next week's podcast will be uh, You're Fired. Hosted, hosted, well, yeah. hosted by Chris yeah. Mitchell? Uh, no, no. I don't <laughs> think we're going to – I think we're just going to put this podcast out to rest. We're okay. Be well, like, also yeah, probably smart, making yeah. multiple people happy. I think anything we can do to reduce the Sestuli factor. But I think Chris has a post going up uh, alongside the prospect list. Isn't that right? Yeah, so we're going to have Chris's uh, Cato system, uh, which he developed and and introduced at the Hardball Times, uh, kind of as a complement to Kylie's prospect work and say, you know, Cato is obviously a – algorithm which doesn't know a lot of things that it needs to know and so it will produce some wonky results but they're still interesting to look at and say if you didn't know all of the scouting and and kind of the um subjective elements that go into prospect analysis and you just went by data what would a prospect list look like and he'll he'll provide that perspective yeah and it's i think it's uh, rigorous it's uh, responsibly done Oh, I don't know about that, but it's interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you've uh, more than fulfilled your obligation, uh, Dave Cameron. Well, thank you. Yeah, all right. That is uh, Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio, is what it's been.